So it's huge insight for the homicide investigators who up to that point were just chasing a ghost. Traits of a sexual sadist, we know that these women suffered. Indictments of uh, very famous soccer players, and the jury did not believe the woman. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today in the studio is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. How are you, Jim? I'm great. I'm really happy to be here again live at CrimeCon. <laughs> with our very special guest... I'm Paul Holes, retired cold case detective from Contra Costa County DA's office. I, I just, I have a quick question. Can you guys come back to LA with us and do this all the time? <laughs> we love this. So, we've been talking to Detective Paul Holes about a very interesting cold case that he worked. And this case has now jumped from jurisdiction up north in California down to Southern California. What did you think when you found out that this offender was actually physically, with DNA, scientifically tied to Southern California now, and there's an escalation? Yeah, very much this was an escalation. That was an evolution where you see this guy that is doing these sexual assaults in Northern California and towards the end of his Northern California series, the female victims were starting to say, he's not getting what he needs. So there was a sense- Wait, 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 what do you mean by that? What did they mean by that? So what they were meaning is, is during the sexual assault, they were sensing that this guy just wasn't getting satisfied. And they thought that he wanted more out of it. And then when he shows up in Southern California and he's making the statement, I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna kill him this time, in the very first attack down there, in his mind, he is recognizing he needs to do more. He is escalating psychologically. And we saw that now, we had tied the DNA between Northern California and Southern California, now we know he did escalate to homicide. Right, and so when we look at this from a profiling perspective or a behavioral perspective, typically we see this kind of escalation happen in serial rape cases when the offender is almost caught, when the offender has a near miss and wants to make sure that he doesn't leave live witnesses. And it's a very horrible escalation when it happens because obviously it just means that instead of having the opportunity to go on with your life and heal and thrive after you're victimized, he takes their life as well. And this is something that unfortunately we see once they start doing that, they never want to stop. Well, and Paul, you said in our earlier episode, you said that he was known as the East Area Rapist in your area, and then at some point he was nicknamed the Night Stalker. That's right. So this... what's next in the evolution of the case, the investigation, and the sort of nomenclature of it? Well, at this point, uh, Larry Poole down Orange County Sheriff's Office was the lead investigator. So I contacted him, and he was working all these homicide cases. And I just had sexual assaults, past statute of limitation. I told Larry, I've got 
50 cases up here in Northern California with all these names that have been contacted by the original investigators, all the statements that these living victims were able to say about who his unknown offender was. Because when you have homicide cases, obviously the victims can't tell you anything about what the offender said or did in that crime scene. You have to read the tea leaves as part of the crime scene reconstruction. So it's huge insight for the homicide investigators who up to that point were just chasing a ghost. Yeah, so as the homicide investigators got this information from you, wasn't this like a really unanticipated bonus for them in their investigation? It was a huge bonus for them. 50 cases, all these latent prints, the DNA evidence tying it. I sent all of that down to Orange County and I just expected it's just a matter of a few months and they're going to solve this thing. Because they were going to be looking for somebody in their jurisdiction, right? That's right. What was the level of cooperation of the victims from the East area? It varied. Some victims did not want to revisit because of all the trauma. They had moved on with their lives. When reaching out and contacting some of the victims over the course of the investigation, there were some that were, I want to see this guy caught and I will do whatever it takes. And there, there were others that were like, we do not want to talk to you. We want to continue to live our life because we've moved past it. And we should talk a little bit about this, how different victims respond to this is a horrific, horrific series of events. Because this offender has obviously exhibited very, very common traits of a sexual sadist, we know that these women suffered during this process. And so it's something that I know from experience and I know from talking to multiple victims over my career that just having to say the words can re-traumatize the victim and so it is not in any way, shape, or form some kind of failure on the part of a victim to say, I don't want to cooperate with them. And in fact, what are the statistics, Francie, of how many rape victims actually do report and actually have a prosecution in their case? Yeah, rape is so underreported. Estimates are at least 50%. So we only ever hear about 50% of the cases. And, and there's, there's two studies that say it was only 20% of adult women who were victims of rape who actually went to rape trauma treatment centers. Only 20% of them reported to law enforcement. But it's worse than that because it's, it's like a funnel. I was talking about this last night with child sexual abuse. It's like a funnel. The same thing applies. You've got a certain number of cases that get reported, which is already under the actual cases committed, the crimes committed. Right. And then you've got to get to an arrest, which if you think about what Paul's saying, hasn't happened yet in that case, right? And then you've got to get a prosecutor to agree to take the case. So how strong is the evidence? Do you have DNA? Do you have a good physical description? Is the person wearing mask and gloves? Do you have fingerprints? And then you've got to convince a jury. And you guys have seen some really common cases. There's one you guys talked about recently on Real Crime Profile from Ireland, where you had a gang rape allegation, indictments of uh, very famous soccer players, and the jury did not believe the woman that she was gang raped. And so despite all of the them fact were that she immediately texted one of the guys that this was not consensual after she left and texted three of her friends separately saying I was raped and the guys who did it, the offenders who did it were texting back and forth about oh my god, she was so hysterical. I'm going to have to go with her to try to calm her down. And then 
I'm sorry it's very graphic, but we spit-roasted another one last night. Yeah, it, it's a horrible case. The evidence was actually quite strong. I'm really shocked they couldn't get at least one juror to go her way and hang the jury and have an opportunity to try the case again. But the worst part about that case, of course, it's obviously terrible that justice has not been done there, but the, I think the worst is the follow-on effects. Other women see that case. They see what happened to that woman. Her reputation was dragged through the mud. It was she's a slut, she's a whore, she wanted it. This was all consensual. And so I'm not at all surprised to hear Paul say that there were some women who said, I just don't want to revisit this. I don't want to live with it. I don't want to deal with it. And I bet I would stake my reputation that there are women that were victims of the East Area Rapist that we've never heard of and never will because they simply didn't come forward. Yeah, and yeah. I don't blame them. And, and one of the interesting dynamics about this particular series is that this offender was purposefully choosing to attack couples. And he would go in and attack a couple sleeping in their bed and get the male bound face down with his hands bound behind his back, his ankles bound, and would put dishes on the back of the male and separate the female out, typically the wife, and sexually assault the wife in a different room. And he told the male if he heard the dishes, he would kill the wife or cut a part of her off and bring it back to him. These males, when I contacted them, they were the ones that did not want to revisit this. It was the women that said, I want to see this guy caught. So it really shows the psychology of the male versus the female victims. And what does that tell us behaviorally? Here's a guy who, A, wanted to maintain control, had a very sophisticated method in which to do it, and he controlled both the male and the female. He did, he chose these situations so that he could exert power and control not only over the female victims that he wanted to sexually assault, but over their husbands because he wanted to feel more powerful. But when he did this, obviously when he came south, he started killing them as well. And there's one situation in which in a public meeting, because there were a number of public meetings, the police officer was reporting about how this offender had broken into a house, had controlled the male, and then raped the female, and somebody literally said, I don't believe it. I don't believe that an offender went in. I don't believe this story. This is all made up. And then, how many weeks later? Guess who got attacked? That man and his wife were then attacked by this offender. How bold is that? How in your face is that? How much does this person have to protect his offending reputation. This tells you a tremendous amount about how important it is for this guy to feel like he is in control. And if somebody even doubts his abilities a little bit, that person is gonna get punished. Well, he obviously had to stalk them, he had to find them, he had to surveil them. Sophisticated, intelligent, hard to catch. And it also tells us that he chose that couple based on who the male was, not the female. And you take a look at the series, 50% of his sexual assault cases in Northern California had males. So how many of those males had a previous interaction with this guy and he said, I'm going to show you, and he came back and attacked them? I talked to a retired FBI agent several months ago about this case. And he was at one of these public meetings. And he said at the public meeting that based on 
the FBI profile, which was that because this guy is so forensically sophisticated, because he's so calm and cool, and he's so incredibly good at his MO, that we believed that he had police training, that he was a police officer. He stated that about a week later, his wife called him late at night while he was out on a surveillance. It said, somebody is trying to break into the house. And he said, get the shotgun. And she said, I have it. And he said, yell out that you have it, rack the shotgun, and if you hear another noise, just shoot in that direction. She racked the shotgun, said, I have a shotgun, and the guy ran away. He believes that not only was the offender a cop, but that he was there in that audience that day. And they never caught the guy who was trying to break into his house. But he believes that it was exactly the same kind of situation. And I believe it too because it's behaviorally consistent. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Well, so we're in 2001, and you sent all the data, information, witness statements, DNA to Southern California. What, what happens next in the investigation? Well, at that point, Southern California agencies are taking the lead on investigating the case. I would field phone calls from them and, and was in a supporting role, but the case ended up going cold again. And did you at some time meet an amazing woman named Michelle McNamara? I did. And how did that happen? Yeah, let's give So fast forwarding to about 2010, we formed a working group. There was select investigators from the various jurisdictions that had independently been working this series. Just like my, I continued to work this series, individuals in Sacramento and down in Southern California, and we decided we need to coordinate about Four years into that, Larry Poole from Orange County Sheriff's Office said, I'm working with a, at the time, a true crime blogger who's interested in writing an article about this case. Her name is Michelle McNamara. Does the group want to cooperate with Michelle? And we as a group decided we would. Well, shortly after that, I got a call from Michelle McNamara. She said she was a housewife who was a writer and wanted to write about this case. She was in the midst of doing sort of an investigation and cooperating with the various police departments, and she gave the case a new name, right? She did. 
And, you know, it's funny, in terms of the evolution of the relationship with Michelle, when I first received a phone call from her, I, of course, am in Joe Friday mode. I am just, you know, just the facts, ma'am. You know, this is what it is. And it, it was very obvious that she had great insight into the series and called me on it. Uh, and I ended up... <laughs> Having yeah, to, uh, yeah, I had to open up a little bit more just to kind of get her satisfied with my answers. And then during the course of time, we established a trust. And then her Los Angeles Magazine article came out, and some of the confidential information I had given her did not show up in her article. And at that point, I knew I could sincerely trust her. So Michelle came to me and said, look, I'm working on this case. I'm going to write a book about it. And she asked me and my brother Tim if we would also get involved in the case, given that we both had experience in the FBI. And we said, sure. And we actually decided that we would try to do a documentary series about it as well. And we worked with her for a while, a little over a year. And we got to the point where we were ready to sort of launch the series and she said, look, I'm not done with my book. I need to focus on this. So I'd like to take time and just work on my book for a while. And once I get it to the point where it's almost done, then we can reinitiate this process. And of course, that never happened. I remember sitting in the writer's room at Criminal Minds when somebody said, Patton Oswalt's wife died last night. And I was like, what do you mean? And it was shocking. And I said, Michelle, are you kidding me? And they said, yeah, she apparently just died in her sleep. And then I later heard all the details of it. And, you know, I feel terrible that I hadn't even talked to her in probably over a year. But all I remember is much like Paul experienced with her when I first met her. And, you know, she called me and said she wanted to write about this. And, you know, we've all had media people call or, or interact with us who didn't know the first thing about the case, well, she knew everything about the case. Now, I had covered it as an FBI profile. We do a five-year cold case reinvestigation of every case or a reanalysis of every case that's out there. And this was one of the ones that we covered several times while I was in the BAU. But I will tell you, she had a command of all of the cases, and she had great ideas about looking at license transfers from Northern California to Southern California. She knew that big data was going to solve this case. And ultimately, she was right. She was. And, you know, I, I spent the better part of a week with Michelle at a California Homicide Investigators Conference, and I went to that conference specifically to spend time with Michelle face-to-face. -face. And six weeks later is when I found out about her dying in her sleep. And she had just emailed me the week before about going up, passing through Santa Barbara on a field trip with her daughter, where we had homicide cases in Santa Barbara, thinking it's so, she did not like having her young child in that location because she knew what had happened there. And the last email she sent me, uh, she ended it, she was sending me a file. We shared a lot of information together, and she sent me a file through the, uh, a web source that I could download and would send it the email, we'll talk to you soon. And then two days went by, and I didn't download that file. I got uh, an email from somebody who had also assisted me on the investigation that was just a link to a People magazine article about her passing, and it was just stunning. But then I went and looked for that file that she had sent, and I downloaded it, and in many ways, she was still helping me on yeah. the case, even though she wasn't no longer with us.
So how did the case progress from there in the beginning of this sort of working group task force? Well, I'm, I'm surprised Francie didn't call me on this because you asked me, Michelle, rename this guy. Oh, yeah. I was waiting. <laughs> oh, yeah. so, He's giving you the chance, Paul. So in the Los Angeles Magazine article, she renamed the East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker, the Golden State Killer. And I remember arguing with Michelle going, I've known him for decades as the ear. How can I possibly now call him something else? Great wisdom on her part, because now the moniker was very descriptive of what this guy really was. And the media started to focus in on this series. So now we're being contacted by the media, the FBI and SAC Sheriff's Office for the 40th year anniversary in uh, June of 2016 had a press conference putting out there, we need to catch this guy and the FBI is going to be committing resources to help local law enforcement in catching this guy, including a $50,000 reward. Well, and that reward has now grown to $200,000 right before he was caught, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it so. did. I know. If you had waited a week, retired, and then caught him, you'd be very happy. Well, we only have a few more minutes now, and we're not going to get into all the details about all the DNA and the methodology, but there was a new methodology used to basically find this guy out of the millions of people who lived in California. That's right. And once you decided that you believed you had the family tree of this guy, how did you actually narrow it down to him? Following the family tree, we're assessing individuals that we knew about our offender. We thought our offender was born between 1940 and 1960. He was in the California in the mid-1970s, and we're looking at individuals that fit those characteristics, and once we narrowed the pool down to those, then it's just traditional investigation, starting to reach out and talk to people. I always track down ex-wives, ex-girlfriends, and see what they remember about this guy. And uh, fundamentally, we ended up landing on a guy that we thought was worthwhile getting a DNA sample from. And then you followed him, you got the DNA sample, you got a 100% match? So we got a match that was good enough to let us know this is likely the guy. Another sample was obtained, and that sample, this is the guy. Okay, and so you were sitting outside of his house. So the last day before I retired, I drove up and I needed to see where this guy was living. And at this point, it was before the DNA results had come back. So I drove up and parked in front of his house and I was looking at his house thinking, yeah, I should just go contact this guy. You know, what's the likelihood it's him? You become so jaded after so many highs and lows of developing a good suspect and eliminating him. And then decided, I don't know enough. There's just enough here that he possibly is the guy, and I drove off. Okay. Well, so I have a question about something Paul told me earlier. And if it was in confidence, it is not going to be in confidence for long. <laughs> uh, the pictures that drive me crazy, and as a prosecutor, and I know, Jimmy, you have a ton of experience with this, too, of the defendants that once they're arrested and they come into court, they're pathetic looking. Right, they're in a wheelchair like this guy is, or they're in a cane, they're unshaven, they're unwashed, they can't think straight, they look you know, at the judge like they don't understand what's happening, when 48 hours earlier, they're very sophisticated and intelligent and smart, so it's all a put up. 
So what I want to ask Paul is when you were surveilling and when you were in front of your house, did you notice any behavior that's, let's call it, inconsistent with wheelchair-bound moron? (laughs) So Sacramento and the FBI had a surveillance team following this guy for the better part of a week. This guy was seen riding his motorcycle at up to 100 miles per hour on the freeway. He, uh, at one point, was doing some evasive maneuvers, thinking he had a tail. He was working in his yard, working in his garage. And after he was arrested, all the neighbors were saying they saw him in the wheelchair and were going, that is not the guy. He was being reported, even though he's 72 years old, they're saying this guy is spry. He's moving around like he's 50. And so when I saw him in the wheelchair, no way. He is now trying to look the feeble old man to get sympathy to try to minimize the situation he's in. Right. And notice that we didn't mention his name. We want everybody to forget his name. We want him to be forgotten. But we want to remember the victims. But Paul, we would be remiss in our last two minutes here if we didn't ask you, A, whether this was a best case or a worst case, and tell us why it is what it is. It actually is both the best case and the worst case. And why is that? Well, obviously it's the best case because we had resolution for all these victims. It's the worst case because this case, over the course of 24 years that I've been involved with it, I experienced the ultimate high, thinking I had found the guy, only to have the DNA eliminate and have those frustrations, to lose somebody like Michelle, who was a true investigative partner for me during the course of this investigation, was an absolute low. So for me, this case basically held all the emotions, the best and the worst. And fortunately, we were able to end it on the best. That's awesome. And can I just ask you one more thing? I know there was an FBI person that was also involved with you in this process. And because he's still in the FBI, he's not allowed to speak about it at this point. But would you please just very briefly tell us his connection to this case? So during the course of the last investigative strategy, I had, turns out he's an attorney with the FBI out of the Orange County field office. His name is Steve Kramer, good friend of mine. Steve Kramer, we would not be here today without his bulldogged persistence in helping me and the team that was doing this, he pushed this through. When we ran into brick walls, he found a way around them. And so he needs to receive a lot of the credit for the fact that we actually caught the Golden State Killer. Well, hopefully, if Steve is listening, and if the FBI is listening, hopefully we will get permission to bring Steve on in a future episode. And we're hoping to also put together a documentary series with Steve and Paul so they can tell exactly what they did in great detail. And for now, we want to thank you, Paul, for being here and speaking to us and sharing your story with the Best Case, Worst Case audience. And we want to thank everybody for listening and everybody at CrimeCon for being here. Thank you very much. So for now, signing off on Best Case, Worst Case. Till next time. 
Thank you, everybody. We really appreciate it. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d2l.org. the number two, L, dot org.